This is Tasting Together. Toronto's News, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome to the show. It's 5 o'clock. I'm Andre Pru, and I'm hungry. I'm always hungry, Andre. How can you only be hungry at 5 p.m.? Well, because it's 5 p.m. on a Saturday, and that's when I start thinking about dinner. But we're always <laughs> talking about the show, You Are Maroki Tong. I am Maroki Tong, and I am hungry and thinking about dinner the moment I wake up every day. <laughs> oh, isn't that the truth? And then the next day, I promptly forget what I ate the day before. What did you eat for dinner yesterday? I can't remember. That's why you have to like write in your calendar so I can have a fond memory that I went out to this really great place, and I would like to go back again someday. <laughs> oh my god can you tell we're food and drink nerds folks i mean that's why they gave us the show right <laughs> yeah fair enough fair enough um, now andre you had a very interesting uh subject matter that you wanted to talk about for today's segment yeah I, there's something i wanted to bring to you because like i know one thing that you and i we talk a lot about is uh food and culture and i think it's one thing where uh the vast majority of, of the listeners are likely of european descent uh granted we are in the gta so it is much more of a, a cultural mosaic, but you know, as someone who grew up in Saskatchewan, I've never really given a thought to white people food. And it's also, you know, I don't think it's necessarily a pejorative thing to talk about it. So like for people sitting in the car, we're not trying to disparage that white people can't eat spice or anything like that. But I saw this interesting article that was talking about um, Chinese Canadians and new immigrants to uh, Canada and this article is in, in BC where there's a, a large uh, Chinese, uh, pardon me, Chinese Canadian community that have uh, emigrated or, or spend time there uh, that talk about how there is an online movement about um, Chinese immigrants enjoying or um, embracing white people food. And I thought the headline was a little curious, like certainly a little, a little provocative, right? And when I don't, yeah. go ahead. No, no, no. I, was, I remember when I was reading this article, it, it also reminded me just um, perhaps how uh, cultures and like how cultures on both sides have progressed over the years or our interpretations of a particular yes. culture. Because I remember, it, and I'm the child of immigrants, so I am Canadian born. And, I, you know, Lunchables was one of the big pieces in the articles that people talked about. Yes. Just sort of the curiosity about the Lunchable. And I thought Lunchables were the coolest thing on earth growing up. And I felt like that that would be what made me quote unquote normal and what quote unquote fit in when I was younger. And I think a lot of times growing up, uh, you know, we've talked about it with chefs like Nick Liu before, yeah. how when you grow up from in within a certain culture, you always feel a little bit ostracized, a little bit different. And sometimes what your lunchbox looks like could reflect that. And I think as a child, wanting to eat raw Mr. Noodles and wanting to eat Lunchables, I thought would make me fit in with everyone else. And I think as we move towards a more diverse and uh, culturally informed society, we start recognizing that it's okay to bring in different foods on the table. And then there, you know, this article sort of had like a view that not everyone loved, quote unquote, what white people food was. In yes. fact, when I was a young adult, they talked about how a lot of international students from Asia would come to North America, not even just from Asia, even from like places like Germany or other places in Europe, they would come and they actually had really robust lunch, like uh, meal systems over there, like lunch systems. And then they would come to North America and be like, what the heck is the lunches here? They are so boring and so bland and so just um, not 
uh oh god i'm not using the words right oh, i think um, you're no i think you're using using the right words i mean like let's be real like the the typical lunch that i took to school as a child was you know uh, a regular rotation of tuna with um you know green onion if my mom was feeling festive uh egg salad and you know a ham sandwich that was typically a piece of like that kind of grayish blue cooked ham with a craft single on it slammed between two pieces of white bread and you know i, I guess so, so what you're saying about talking about fitting in like when i hear stories like that and especially given what we talk about on that show it really does break my heart when i hear about that because i think about like my little daughter spencer right now i'm hoping that when we get to her school age that if she has classmates that are of different cultures whether it's european asian south asian wherever that the kids have progressed beyond making fun of the kid, bringing the weird smelling food for lunch. Because I think about the opportunities to exchange culture that could have existed in school if people weren't too busy trying to fit in. Like I'm thinking about what opportunities you could have had, Maroki, if you were... And I, here's the thing is, I don't even know what your mother might have cooked for lunch for you if you weren't trying to fit in or what your mother did cook for lunch for you, which is something I just <laughs> I thought was fascinating in this, you know? I definitely have a remember of like sticky rice wrapped in lotus leaf um, sent with me to summer camp and trying to eat it without proper utensils under a tree outside. And because it's sticky rice, it like the gr my hands are, you know, touching grass and it's getting stuck on the oh, grass no. and the okay. dirt as I'm trying to eat it. I guess what I was trying to say is that, you know, for a while, a lot of there was a lot of kind of um, looking down on the North American style of lunches, right? We're talking about okay. the Lunchables or, or carrot sticks and hummus or just like a yogurt with a couple of celery sticks and that they aren't as robust and not as diverse and not as rich as some of the meal plans that are made in school systems in Asia yeah. or even some parts of Europe. But this article was interesting because it's basically looking at this kind of food in a new light and seeing that this simplified way of eating is a way to kind of allow... Um, a culture that is generally built in a kind of a fast-paced, high-pressure society to chill out a little bit, right? It's like a light lunch. It's easy to prepare, and they're looking at it in a whole new light, which is why I found this article so fascinating because it's actually switching the narrative again yeah. and saying that these foods, as one person apparently wrote on social media, one Chinese person, they said, they tried baby carrots dipped in hummus. They made me feel worse than death. Uh -huh. <laughs> But they're but they're now actually looking at it and saying that they're a fan of this kind of cuisine now because now you can you don't have to worry about prepping these huge uh, fanciful meals. All you have to do is grab some carrots and hummus, and I think that's actually great. And in fact, I remember introducing carrots and hummus to a Chinese friend of mine a few years ago, and he looked at it with disdain. And I think all his friends called him baby carrot. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Introducing this meal to him. You know, I, I actually. Okay, I, I think there's um there's a mixing of cultures here that hopefully we can we can see the takeaway from because one of the reasons that I think that lunches exist at this style in in this style in North America that lunches have, have shifted that and uh, you know I you know I, I don't even know how far back we'd have to look to see where things have kind of shifted right like is you know you have pictures of of workers with their metal lunch boxes on the way to factories like Canada hasn't really been a factory society for for quite a while. But like, I think of anything like North American culture really does focus on the grind. And it's just like all, all these meals that we've talked about in this article are things that you can eat at your desk. But what we're talking about, what the, um, the Chinese people who are interviewed in this article are talking about is 
taking the time they would spend cooking a, a, a hearty lunch, sitting and eating it, and then getting back to work is reclaiming some of that time and relaxing a little bit with a simpler lunch, which is something yes. I, I think that we could hopefully all take a page from. And yes, people listening to the radio right now, I guess this makes us lazy millennials for wanting to bring a little bit more balance in our life. <laughs> I think sometimes too, it just maybe uh, the takeaway for all of this is um, diversity is the spice of life, life, whether it is someone deciding to incorporate, um, you know, a bow into their lunch or a little bit of stir fry, or whether it is someone like me who um, places the lunch bowl on a pedestal and finds <laughs> it just super exciting to be creating my own little personal pizza. Oh, it was destiny. We it was destiny for you to become like a wine and food person, though, because uh, Lunchables are just a stepping stone to charcuterie. It's just yeah, fancy charcuterie. Are. That's <laughs> what Lunchables are. Uh, I'll take it. I'll take it. Or, you know, like a, like I said, the little mini pizza makers. Yeah, I'm literally having the memory synapses connected <laughs> the little make your own pizzas. I think it's just the way for us to all learn a little bit from each other and adopt it and just like have a little bit of fun with our food. Well, there we go. Speaking of having fun with food, for those people who think that opening a restaurant is fun, uh, we are getting the skinny. I'm stealing that from you, Maroki. Getting the skinny from uh, what it takes to open up a restaurant from a realtor who knows all the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the mistakes that many people have made. Spoiler alert, it might not be as fun as you think. So stick around. <laughs> We're going to be chatting a little bit about opening a restaurant after the break on 640 Toronto. This is Tasting Together. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. You know, Maroki, recently we were talking about uh, some of the TV that we were watching. And uh, one of my favorite things to watch this summer has been season two of The Bear, uh, where the, the crew on the show are in the process of opening a fine dining restaurant. And I don't know, Maroki, have you ever thought about what it would entail to open a restaurant? I don't think about it like super hard, but the initial business person in me regularly thinks, my God, I have no idea how these people make it. It's honestly like, you know, as someone who's worked with a lot of startup and entrepreneurs and throughout my entire life and doing my due diligence on them, a lot of people, they approach me with their dreams. And I was always known as the professional party pooper being the one who does the due diligences to be like, yeah, that dream you have, it's not going to come true. And I mean, hospitality itself is such a risky business to get into. And, you know, I guess the secret I'm not telling a lot of people is, is and I guess I'm about to tell everyone listening to the radio is I've actually been thinking a little bit about opening up a restaurant with my wife. So when the next guest who's joining us, Christian Petronio's name popped into my inbox, I was just like, I did not know that this job exists. He is a realtor who specializes in restaurants. He is the director of the hospitality division of the Chi Real Estate Group. How's it going, Christian? Very well. Thanks for having me on, both of you. Yeah, it's great. This is a great uh, conversation point because I think sometimes a lot of people ne might not necessarily think of this side when it comes to opening a restaurant. And, you know, in all the shows, since you were talking about the bear, we watch things like, you know, uh, restaurant, not restaurant wars, but like um, kitchen nightmares yeah. and all these things. And we talk about the failing business. And a lot of times everyone gets this like nice renovation. And it's about reinvigorating the menu or whether the chef actually has good business sense. But we don't think about the brick and mortar of it. So maybe this is a loaded question, but let's just throw it out there into the universe. What does it cost to start up a restaurant, Christian? Yeah, Maroki. So to answer your question, I think there's really two main paths that people can take. Uh, there are variations, of course, in between, but really the two main uh, paths would be, do I purchase an existing business because it's a fairly quick turnaround uh, and I get to 
possibly inherit a liquor license if that's part of your program? Uh, or do I build out from scratch because you have a very specific idea in mind that you really want to execute, you know, where you want the kitchen placement and all the rest. And it really just depends as an operator uh, to an extent what kind of budget you have. The other stream, like I said, starting out, if you're building from scratch, really the numbers right now, I would say are about $400 per square foot to put in a commercial kitchen, your walk-in fridge, and outfit it all together. It's about $400 per square foot. Wow. That's actually, I think, a little bit less than I thought. So if you were looking to open, say, you know, a 1,500-square-foot cafe, um, not that that's not what I'm thinking about. It's uh, <laughs> I'm still looking at, like, less than $100,000 to potentially get that set up, depending on location and a few other factors, right? Well, your response, Andre, is uh, perfectly indicative of why people get into hospitality. And I'm going to include me in this because I, you know, again, came from 20 plus years of being in the business is eternal optimist for the most part are people who get into this business. <laughs> you, you really have to be, you have to be a really positively minded person. Now it doesn't mean you're reckless or careless. And I mean, you still have to be very much on top of your numbers and knowing what's going on with your business. Uh, but that being said, you know, you have to bring that positive attitude every day to what it is you do, whether you're in the pre-planning of the build out or actually operating, you have to you have to bring that uh, because as many projects in life and restaurants, principal among them, it will go over time and over budget. Yes, I, I mm -hmm. there's going to be a lot that. of unexpected pieces. For sure. Maybe this is a good way to segue into the next question because we're talking about the eternal optimist. <laughs> we're talking about someone who's saying, "I want to open a restaurant. It's going to go great. I did the math. It's not going to cost so much. It's going to cost us uh, under 100k for 1500 square feet." And that's when you start running into the permitting issues and the zoning issues or liquor license issues or the, the oven that maybe you inherited is broken. And you find out that it was not necessarily as glorious as you saw in watching all those Food Network shows and the optimism is waning. So what are some of the common mistakes that you find people make when they are trying to get into this business? Yeah, and that's a good point. I think it is really like when you're going about planning your business and putting it on paper. And I think finding a good template, something that works for you that's really thorough on the on the side of the financials is very useful and try to be, you know, as much as you're an optimist, you have to give some kind of base to that optimism. It can't be baseless or blind optimism. It's got to be an informed optimism. <laughs> and to that extent, I would say, you know, be very cynical when you're outlining your numbers and try to project, Hey, what's the absolute minimum here in a worst case scenario. And can I still at that absolute minimum make these numbers work? Uh, and then I think that's kind of where you start. But you you have to know what that is. You have to know what that bottom threshold is because you don't want to be hanging on to a business where potentially if it, if it isn't working out, uh, you don't want to be holding on to that and taking losses and moving forward that way. It's just not a healthy place uh, for a variety of reasons, obviously. Yeah, I know that, uh, like you said, optimism factors in, but foolish optimism is a whole nother thing. I mean, let's get to maybe a, a fun question here as we get into the final minutes of the interview here. Uh, do you have any like really good kind of real estate horror stories where like someone came to you with a listing and it was a little bit of like, oh, God, no. Um, like what is going on in this kitchen? Uh, who thought that opening a restaurant in this location was... A good idea like maybe if there's anything you want to a story you want to share with us that innumerable involve... andre you can write the intro to the book all right well well i would give it give us give us like give us like one of, give us a really good one like the one that you, you um, like you tell well, at, at, at parties look, here. The, the one thing i think that i sorry i'm gonna deviate a little bit because i could get into a lot of those There's a lot of places i walk in i'm like how do you guys even matter so that being said to any of you who are listening who are you know 
operators who have an existing operation, very important they keep your places clean and uh, on top of their game, obviously, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is the health inspector, inspector. But if you're going to sell it, present. The one story I'd more point out, to be honest, would be a very common, not even misconception. It's almost, Because it's so counterintuitive, it's a difficult thing, no matter how many times I try to convey the message, to share with a lot of, particularly the seller uh, restaurateurs or operators, uh, shouldn't limit it to restaurateurs because cafes, nightclubs, bars, what have you. And that is, again, it's very counterintuitive, but more often than not, the first offer you're going to get, if you put, going to be, I'm not going to say the best offer. Usually it is, it might not even be the quote unquote best offer per se, but it's usually your most motivated buyer. And the, and a lot of times people out of sort of the, the trope or the, the long-standing conception offer and it doesn't mean you can't negotiate that offer but a lot of times they kind of skip over that first offer and i've seen a lot of sellers sit on listings i mean put themselves in a tough spot because they had a hard time fighting that intuitive kind of like no i don't take the first offer i'm not going to engage the first offer um and, and i've seen people literally give up offers for like a difference of 10 or 15,000 and then move on. And then two years later, they're still sitting on the market, absorbing losses and Oof. trying to get off their property. Uh, yeah. So I think in terms of utility as well, this is one of the more important kind of uh, points that I would want to mention for sure. I think that's pretty sound, <laughs> sound advice and interesting scenario. I mean, it's something that even I see in, in my neighbor, not my neighborhood is there've been houses that like uh, in residential neighborhoods here that are just sitting on the market because i think there's some people who maybe got a little bit greedy when things were great a year, a year and a half ago and yeah. you know they've still got the for sale sign and the properties aren't moving because you know things just aren't what they were a year and a half ago and now you've got people just sitting on property right absolutely i think that's really really sound advice that you're providing not only for restaurateurs but even just showing the relationships between the real estate agent and kind of potential restaurant owners in the future thank you so much for joining us christian and imparting your sagely advice to all the hopefuls out there yeah you still haven't scared me out of uh my dream of one day opening a restaurant um but also, I'm an eternal optimist, and not gonna lie, it's it, it kind of scares me that that you, there's a certain profile you need to get into this crazy business, and uh, I guess for better or for worse, I fit it. Well, being crazy is part of it for sure. <laughs> Coming up after the break, we're going to dive into some really amazing Burgundian production, and I know Andre, you're particularly excited about this. I know uh, I was pretty amped up about my trip to Burgundy when I got back. So I um, wouldn't say it's all on me, but one of the wonderful people I met on the trip is uh, was recently in town and we had a chance to sit down uh, for an exclusive interview and tasting with Lauriane Andre of Domaine Francoise Andre, uh, one of the best producers in Burgundy's, at least according to the Guide Hachette. And we'll explain what that means coming up after the break. We're tasting together. This is 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Well, Andre Prue, it looks like you and I have taken to a lot of travel this summer. And even <laughs> though Tasting Together is all about Toronto food and drink, who doesn't want a little bit of romance abroad? And who doesn't want a little bit of advice on where to go to plan their trip next? A hundred percent. I mean, 
you and I have been lucky enough to do quite a bit of travel this year, but it's a, a rare opportunity when the travel that we've done comes to us. And mm-hmm. if the uh, room sounds a little different, uh, we are in the same place. We usually record remotely mm-hmm. and we are on location at the Vintage Conservatory in Yorkville. Yes, in a red room, if you guys want to get a visual <laughs> for uh, the effect. <laughs> it's a very red room. Uh, and we are joined by, uh, according to the Guide Hachette. I don't know if you know about the Guide Hachette, Maroki, but it is like... I did my research. I did my research. Apparently, it's quite a prestigious French wine buying guide published by Hachette v- Livre. And it's all in French. I even went on the website to try and read the article that I think you're alluding to. And it was all in French. So, but it's fine. I did go to a bilingual school. The, well, the good news, okay. So the good news about the guide though, is even if you don't speak French, it's worth punching into Google Translate. I have found a lot of wineries uh, this way doing travel because doing wine travel in France is very different than in North America where you get on a bus and, and do it. Uh, but we are joined by the uh, winemaker of the year for 2023 for uh, Burgoyne uh, Côte d'Or. Is it specifically? Yes. The so hello. Hi. Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very I'm very happy. I'm Lauriane André from Domaine Françoise André, and I'm so happy, so glad to be here with you uh, today. And uh, yes, uh, we we were in fact the the winemaker of Côte de Bonne. Cote de, Cote Bord, de Bord, okay. Right. So we are revisiting Burgundy once again. Hey, uh, this is my first time. <laughs> you may have done the press trip to Burgundy, Andre, but this is me getting to do a little bit of armchair, armchair travel with someone quite prolific I, from Burgundy. <laughs> I also think I need to get better at these uh, intros to the interviews because a few weeks ago we had Holly McNarland on and she introduced herself <laughs> and now we have Lorianne Andre introducing herself. But thank you very much for uh, joining us. And sp- uh, you have a very busy trip to Toronto and uh, I appreciate you giving us some time here. I'm so happy to be to be with you. It's a pleasure to share this moment in the beautiful red room. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, let's dive right into it. I think this is a really great opportunity for you, Lorianne, to share your history with the winery and a little bit more about yourself and how you came into this position. Because from what I know, this um, you're kind of uh, descended from the family line for Domaine Francoise André. Am I correct? That's it. That's it. In fact, uh, uh, at the estate, all began in 1983. Uh, my um, my father-in-law, who was an uh, accountant, had a lot of customers uh, in Burgundy who were gro- uh, wine growers and winemakers. And one day, he drank a glass of Savigny Les Bones Premier Cru Les Vergelès, and he totally, totally felt in love with his terroir. And he said if one day he would have the, the opportunity to buy a vineyard of this terroir, he will do it. And uh, the opportunity took place in 1983. And uh, that was the, the beginning of the creation of the estate. And I, I took over the management of the estate in 2010. But, uh, you know, I studied laws and I was human resources director, though something very far from uh, the wine industry. And my in-laws, in fact, told me in, in uh, 29, Lorian, we, we will take the manage- management of the estate. And I was very, <laughs> very surprised about their proposal. And after three months of reflection, I said to them, uh, uh, OK, uh, it's very challenging, but uh, I, uh, I'm not going to take the management of the estate without training and instruction. So I did the training during non-smone. 
And I was after very lucky to recruit Jerome, the winemaker of the estate, and we take over the management of the estate together in 2010 with a lot of uh, new things. Voilà. We change our organic method into organic uh, wines. It was very important because my in-law gave us one as aim. It was to increase the quality of the wines. And we, we tried to put life again the soil. Yeah, for sure. I mean, in the um, literature that I read about, you seemed like you were quite prolific in and quite, um, I guess, like a innovator in bringing biodynamic and, or and organic viticulture practices to the winery, especially at a time when it was probably less cool to do so. Now everyone's doing the thing. So you were very much like a forefront and a pioneer for that. Yes, yes, it's, it's what's not easy. Uh, due also to, you know, you know in, in Bourgogne, we have a lot of humidity and uh, it's difficult to, to be inorganic, but uh, uh, it's a work we can do because uh, finally uh, it gave, I think it gave us the uh, wines with, uh, we are very representing their terroir, in fact. So you talked about how you were basically voluntold that you were going to be taking over the the, the winery and you took the three months of reflection. Did you love wine before this was presented before you? Uh, you know, I came from Lyon and uh, in my family, it was a little bit sad for that because we didn't drink a lot of wines. Uh, it was um, uh, especially for events like uh, communion, Christmas, mm. uh, like this. And, but when I, when, you know, when I, uh, I follow my husband, who, who is a Burgundy man, I also felt in love with the Burgundy wines. But when I uh, came in, in uh, Bourgogne, I didn't drink some wet wines, you know. Uh, so, but after, when I was, uh, when I arrived in, in, in uh, Burgundy, I discovered all the Burgundy wine and I totally also felt in love with the Burgundy wines. I love that. I think sometimes learning, and that's something I always love challenging drinkers when they say, I don't like this, I don't like that. I'm like, there's so much wine right. out there. Like, you just need to taste the right one. And I'm going to deviate to another area of Burgundy. Like, that was how I got into Chablis. Because for a long time, I was like, I am not here for Chablis. Yes. And I tasted some Premier Cru and I was like, Okay, I'm now here for Chablis. So um, this kind of alludes to my next question because I know I know we're having an opportunity to taste a lot of your wines today. And um, and for, for a person who's just getting started and interested in getting to Burgundy, like what's a good entry point for them? Like what would you point them if they're saying, okay, I'm ready, I'm going to taste wines of Bourgogne um, and Burgundy yeah, for the English they folks. Yeah, because they could be a little out of reach. Like if, if you're sitting in the car right now and your usual go-to is a 10 or $20 bottle of French or Italian wine, um, what would you say to them to convince them to spend a little bit more money to go to that back section of the LCBO? Uh, I think perhaps for me, uh, the interest point of Bourgogne will be um, by the regional ap appellation. Uh, be because we've got uh, a single varietal in Bourgogne, such as Chardonnay for the, for the white, as you know, and Pinot for the red wines. And um, in this uh, uh, regional appellation, um, we have only two grapes. It's, it's a chance which, which, which shows the essence of, um, of uh, the Bourgogne. It's a good enter. And, uh, and then if you want to go further, 
you got the village appellation, you see that from the difference from a village to another, from a plot to another. And in fact, you build step by step your wine education through uh, the pyramidal uh, the pyramidal appellation. But the thing which is also the most important for me is to get pleasure when you tasted wines. Ooh, right I on. love that. Right. And, and I think the most important takeaway from what you said, for some people in the car, understanding village, appellation, all these words might mean something to you. And for a lot of you in the car right now, it won't. But the key takeaway is if you go to the LCBO and you go to the Bourgogne section, the white wines are Chardonnay, the red wines are Pinot Noir, right. even if you don't understand what's on the bottle. Like yes. we have a bottle of Chardonnay on the table right now. Savigny Les Bon, Premier Cru, Les Vergiles. These are all just ways of telling people where the grapes came from. Yes. Right. So specifically, if you're buying wines from Burgundy or Bourgogne, if it says Bourgogne Blanc, it's white. If it's Bourgogne uh, Rouge, or it's it's Pinot Noir. So I know we talked a lot about the LCBO, but hilariously... These wines are not available at the yeah. LCBO. <laughs> but you can get them in Ontario. So, Lorianne, just to close off, where can people find your wines and get into them? Okay, I, I'm, um, I'm very lucky to, to work with uh, all my, you know, my uh, partner are the same value than uh, our estate. We are a family estate and we want to travel with family uh, firm. And uh, those were the same values and the value of, of the wines also, conviviality, sharing, it's very important. And I'm very lucky to work with the Gibson family group and uh, especially uh, Leslie Gibson. And you, you can find uh, our wines uh, with the Gibson family group. So basically directly, folks, little do you know that you do not need to go to the LCBO or the wine rack to get your wines. You can also purchase these days from bottle shops at restaurants, which you may or may not find some of Lorian's wines there if Gibson Family Group ends up selling to them. Yep. Or you can go to Gibson Family Group and find an order directly from their website. Good advice, Maroki. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for giving us the time, Lorian. Thank you so much. And cheers. Cheers. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. You know, Maroki, um, I really enjoyed last week when we did a bit of a touch on your trip to Greece, but I think we forgot some important parts about your trip, and I'm looking forward did to unpacking now? it. Oh, yes, we did. <laughs> I guess uh, I, I know what you're alluding to, Andre. Obviously, I spoke so highly of the food and the cuisine when we were there that we just completely didn't speak about the wine. But maybe that's because I just knew we needed to dedicate a whole section to the PDO slopes of Meloton and PGI Sithonia, which is sort of the region that I was exploring when I was in Greece, the wine region specifically. So for those of you at home and have no idea what acronyms I am spouting out right now. PDO and PGI generally refers to geographical regions, sort of how we refer to VQA in Ontario. So <laughs> it kind of speaks to the origin of the wine and where the grapes come from. And of course, I was very, very fortunate to have had the opportunity to attend this press trip to Greece. And it was a project co-financed by Greece and the European Union. So how lucky was I to be in the sun and check out like 450 plus hectares of winery and just explore what the region was all about <laughs> you know when you said 450 hectares i thought you were going to finish the sentence by saying 450 wines uh because that would have been a, a good week and i mean that is i think a lot of people don't realize that when you go on these press trips they can be a lot of work and quite intense where you do get to taste 
a lot of stuff. It's not all fun and games, um, but I a think you did have a pretty relaxing time. Yes, I mean, look, we're in Greece, and one in Greece, one does as uh, the Greeks do, and they live a pretty relaxed life over there. So even when it came to tasting wines, they weren't going to put us to work, but they did set us the task a little bit. We, you know, walked through the vineyards. It was quite warm. It gets really, really hot there in the summers. However, they do have temperature regulations due to the fact that they are on elevation. They're about, um, I think, anywhere between like a hundred and. 400-ish meters above sea level and obviously altitude does help in keeping things cool and then they are surrounded by the mountains um and then uh which obviously leads le uh, leads lends to a bit of cooling and then they have cooling mediterranean breezes like when we were standing up there it was hot don't get me wrong when you're yeah. out in the sunshine it is hot and when i'm looking at those workers working on the slopes i'm like dang son um you guys are super hard workers but that cooling breeze you feel it and that is good for the grapes now um i think something really interesting that you just talked about because greece is dealing with a lot of heat this summer we talked a little bit about that in the segment where we talked about the food uh but also last week we talked about cool climate wines and the the factors that make a wine cool climate and obviously being uh, a francophile and someone who loves french wine and niagara wine i love wines that have great acidity and you talked a lot about the altitudes of the greek wines so in spite of dealing with the heat are the wines that in in the region that you visited are the wines considered cool climate or are we going to be dealing with some more um opulent flavors there's a word i like to use <laughs> i think ten thousand percent i would call it a warm climate region because you are still getting warm temperatures you get so much sun now they do uh, manage sun exposure obviously by like um canopying the grapes uh, you know, by like using the leaves and the from the grapevines. Mm -hmm. However, because of the cooling Mediterranean breezes, you are maintaining the acidity. Like so one of their um, main white grape varieties is a Sirtico, which I think a lot of us who do know anything about Greek wine, we probably do uh, get a Sirtico in Ontario semi-frequently. And the ones that I tried had really good acidity. Now they had another local red um, indigenous variety. There's so many varieties of grapes in the world that we never get a chance to experience. And Greek varieties is one of them it's called limnio and it's a red uh greek grape variety mm -hmm. and that one was more like robust unctuous full-bodied perfumey mm. kind of reminds you of like the more robust you know if you had to compare it against like the californian reds but they are you know not you're not you know they're not over oaking it in the way that we're used to the new world production it is a little bit more focused in old world production so you're going to get like those fruit characteristics in the wine and the perfuminess with some balanced oak in there so yeah i would call it warm mediterranean climate if that makes any sense no it does make sense and i think even you just describing uh the conditions that go with the winemaking there is uh fascinating as well like obviously greek wines I don't have the global presence of Italian, French, Californian, like a few regions that we, we you and I both name dropped in the segment. So I, I think when you're talking about a lot of the global wine regions, there is quite a bit of influence from a Western and, you know, larger market media. Like I think the American media has had a strong influence on worldwide winemaking, but it sounds a little bit like um, Greek winemaking has been... Uh, I guess a little more segregated from the influence of the the global market, and as a result, you know you're focusing more on indigenous grapes as opposed to things like Merlot or Cabernet Sauvignon, which I'm sure would love to soak up that uh, that Greek heat. 
Yeah, well, they actually do grow them there. So of the Pedioslopes okay. Meloton, yeah, they have 26 varieties that um, do qualify to be recognized as PGI, Cithlonia, or Pedioslopes of Meloton wines. Um, I do not remember off the top of my head what three varieties they decide to use to start. Assyrtico uh, was definitely one of them. Another one was another indigenous variety called Malaguzia, which was actually believed to be extinct. And it was this particular wine region that brought it back to life. So I thought that was... <laughs> Super, super cool, but they do grow the Bordeaux varieties there, Andre. So that Cabernet Sauvignon or even Rome varieties, that Syrah that you're looking for, they're there. Oh man, that'd be interesting <laughs> to see. Like, like I mean, it's one of the things too. Okay, this is going a little bit nerdy and off the rails, but I, I don't think a lot of people <laughs> think and and have the affection for Syrah or Shiraz if you like Australian, as they do with something as you know more widely accepted as Cabernet Sauvignon, but. You know, Syrah really is adaptable to, to climate. Like we make really great Syrah in a cool climate like Ontario or, um, you know, parts of BC as well. But, uh, you know, when it gets some heat, like it can also be really jammy, juicy, deli delicious, black licorice, things like that. But, okay, I, I you know, it's cool to, to hear um, to hear about the other influences there as well. I guess it, it isn't an untouched utopia as I, 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 I painted it. <laughs> I know. I think it's one of those, um, perhaps in North America, we sort of experience Greek wines as a new phenomena. So we kind of consider it a new world, but they've been making wine as long as the Italians and the Spanish do. We're just experiencing for the first time. So they have that, uh, they have that particular wine growing experience there. And what was interesting is that um, they, because of these huge slopes, they always are working on focusing on like minimizing erosion mm -hmm. and they, and, and a lot of the vineyards, they're like, um, they're kind of focusing on like regenerative structures, leaving cover crops, or even when they're like mowing and, and doing uh, pruning, they're leaving the waste so that it actually adds like natural organic compost back into the soils, which will help minimize erosion as a, as, as well as adding natural fertilizers. And I think it's really important to sort of mention, obviously we had the big heat wave hit the region when I was visiting actually, and climate change is a very real concern that they have. And right now they do no irrigation um, in the winery. And I think part of it, they can man, like they have the natural humidity because it's also surrounded by pine trees. There's actually so many wild plants that grow there. Like when I was walking through the vineyards there's a lot of wild flowers, there was wild olive trees just growing on the property. It helps kind of keep the humidity in, but they do irrigate when they're like baby vines and they mm -hmm. need a lot of water to grow. They do irrigate the baby vines, which makes sense, right? Completely makes sense. You know, there is a saying in, in virtually every good grape growing region on the planet is that for grapefruit, you need it to struggle a little bit. And grapevines are pretty resilient. So when you have this is why when you talk about old vines being a little bit more prestigious, it's because when they've been alive for, you know, 15, 20, 60, 70 years, those roots have had a long time to go deep and dig for water. So even in a really hot summer, you can still find it. But when you're dealing with baby vines, they haven't had a chance to build that um, build that root network. I think it's really cool, like all the stuff that you're talking about, just like um, trying to work with the climate to make sure that the vineyards are happy and healthy and you're still producing high quality wines. Yeah, I think like innovation is definitely an area that this particular region is trying to focus on because one thing they say is that 
they've a lot of them a lot of vineyards have sort of done as they've done for 80 plus 100 years and they've just been used to a system but in order to adapt to climate change and even just adapt to kind of um sustainability on the human level like making sure that you your vineyard workers are happy they are offering salaries with benefits and and taking care of the workers that's a pretty new and novel thing but for those of us who are gardeners you know how we're always looking at different ways to trellis our plants and making sure they hit the sunlight and making sure the plants don't lean over <laughs> they do similar things in the vineyards and they've been doing it a certain way called the double royal cordon for um 80 of the vineyards in greece for a long time but this particular region they've actually indicated that if they do it in another method which is sort of like these bush methods it may weather climate change better better so the fact that they are adapting innovative practices i think is going to be really good for the sustainability of the growing region um for for years to come you know I think Danny Longo, who's on vacation this week, is going to really feel bad that he missed all of this segment because it's really exciting to hear you talk about all the stuff that you learned in Greece. Okay, he's just going to have to tune in and bring all his questions to next week's segment. And speaking of which, we are at the end of Tasting Together for this week. Make sure you lock your dial next week. we got another great show. Hope you come hungry at 5 o'clock. Absolutely. And in the meantime, go out and get some Greek wine. On 640 Toronto.